for everybody else, uh, thank you for your singing. And um, I was talking to one of our musicians this past week, and they had had opportunity to go through these songs multiple times, and they were looking forward to the worship service in a strong way. That's similar to what I go through with the message, where you get to hear it at this hour usually every week, um, but I've had time to get excited about it and think on it, and there can be something that's so helpful to that. And so sometimes I'll even uh, regret when we miss something. I'll go fast through a point possibly, or even a song we'll go through, and I wish we can stop and sing that again. And several parts of the music that we, ta- that we touched on are going to come through in the message today. And so I'm grateful for that. I would like to encourage you at this point to give an invitation to folks that might not attend church regularly uh, to come to our Easter celebration. It's not on Easter Sunday. It's the week before Easter Sunday. So Palm Sunday, we're going to have a special musical presentation And it will be a wonderful time. The choir has been practicing. We'll also have um, some readings going along with that. But it's a great opportunity for you to invite maybe a neighbor or a family member that does not normally attend church. And um, it should be a great opportunity. And of course, the following week, Easter Sunday, is also a special Sunday. But um, look at the, I think the bulletin has several of the special events that are listed there, as well as our Good Friday service, which is a community service. And uh, we have between two and 400 believers that will join together in the middle of the day on Good Friday and we'll worship God. There's uh, several churches that are represented and it is a blessing. Actually, my very first time ever stepping into this church building was coming to a Good Friday service several years ago and, um, and now I get to be a part of those Good Friday services. So I would invite you to be a part of all the things that are going on this year. Before I pray, I want to just give a word about the message today. Because as I approach God's word, I always have a couple things in mind. One thing that I have in mind as I'm going to teach is I oftentimes will picture Jesus Christ as listening to the message. And I always have a goal of him kind of nodding his head. Yes, that's what I was going for. Yes, that's what I meant when I put that down in, in, the, in the Bible. So there's always that in my mind. Another thing that is oftentimes in my mind when I'm preparing a message, and this week it's been high on my radar, is how is this going to be received? Is this something that we genuinely believe? I have a vivid memory of uh, my Aunt Pat. Today is my Aunt Pat's birthday, and um, she's down in Illinois. And my Uncle Jack and Aunt Pat, who had had a huge influence on my life, and I can remember one time sitting on a Sunday afternoon at the dinner table and hearing her say something that totally blew me away. It was after church and she was talking about one of the finer points in the message. And she said, that's not what the Bible teaches. She was questioning what the preacher had said. And I, as a teenager, was, my jaw dropped and I'm like, well, hang on a second. What, what are you saying? She was disagreeing with what was being said. Now, I know I don't have to push very hard to get some of you to disagree with what I say sometimes. Sometimes some of you are writing those notes down. Let's just see if this is really the case or not. As we approach the text that we're going to talk about today, I've asked myself about the credibility of this. Specifically in America, can I preach this kind of a message? The title of the message is Suffering for Christ. Do we even have a leg to stand on 
as far as individuals that have suffered for Jesus Christ. When we talk about the idea, and we're going to go into this in depth, the idea that all Christians are going to suffer, has that been your, your experience? Have you seen this past week, this past month, something that you can put down and say, this is how I suffered for Christ because I was living in a righteous way. These are things that come to my mind. Now, I always default back to the fact that God has given us this entire book. And so it is for our instruction, for our reproof, for our um, doctrine. God has given us this, and so it's not a waste of our time. I don't think it's even close to a waste of time. But I will just let you know that I was hesitant approaching this text, thinking, you know, can we talk about suffering for Christ in a way that's even credible? And so I would ask you to pray for me as we come to God's word now. Pray for yourself that you would be very much open to the message that Jesus Christ hopefully would nod his head along with and say that's exactly what I wanted my children in this place, in this day to hear. Would you pray at this time with me? Heavenly Father, the pain that we would observe in the world around us, the pain that we would observe as we look back to the cross and the understanding that that that, that pain was for us, we do praise you for that. We thank you that there was nothing that we could have done to make ourselves pure and right in your eyes, but there was one who was worthy to pay that price. And we thank you that you gave up your only son and that Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross and he stayed there, stayed there until the price was paid. I would ask now that you would allow us to understand your word in a way that would help us to live the, the days that we have, the years that we have in this place. Allow us, God, to approach them in such a way where we want you to be pleased with each moment, each decision that we make, even if it's one that might cost us something. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There might be a number of questions or topics that you'll be able to take away from the message today. Maybe as you're sitting over Sunday lunch or maybe later on this week, um, you're thinking about some of the finer points of what we've said. But let me throw this question out there that I don't really have a great answer for. But I think it's a good question to ask as far as the Christian conversation goes. What is harder, living for Jesus or dying for Jesus. I don't want you to rush too quickly. I think this would be a lengthy debate. Of course, we have a great respect for individuals that have given their life on the mission field, given their life because they did not, they did not deny Jesus Christ. And on the other side of that, we have individuals who have gone through 50, 60 70 years of faithfully following Jesus Christ, of producing fruit, of having the darts of the enemy hurled at them, and year after year, they turn out faithful. Which of these is harder, do you think? Now, we've been going over the Beatitudes for the last several weeks, and this will be our last time in the Beatitudes 
In a similar way to our Sunday messages, when we come to the end of a message, I will oftentimes put a question out there that says, what can you do? Some people in in their teaching or preaching call this the so what of the message. What do we do with this? I want to suggest today that as we come to the end of the Beatitudes, that there is this idea of something that's going to come for the child of God that chooses to go after these Beatitudes. If we go after these Beatitudes, what is going to be the result? And here's what I'm going to suggest. We're going to see from God's word today that if you will go after these seven previously taught Beatitudes that we've gone over, that at least two things are going to happen. Number one, you are going to be persecuted. I know that's not very much of a selling point for the series, right? If you do these things, you're going to be persecuted. This is one of the paradoxes in the Christian life. We've talked about a few paradoxes, and that will become more clear. So first of all, if you do all these things, these beatitudes that Jesus Christ stood and taught, you will be persecuted, and also you will be blessed and you'll be rewarded. So it's not all bad news, but I'll just give you a fair warning. We're going to spend more time on the first part, on the persecution. We're going to spend the majority of our moments today talking about that. All that to bring us to our text, Matthew chapter 5. If you're not already there, please turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. You might have access to one on your electronic device. If you do not own a Bible of your own, please take one of those Bibles in the pew rack and keep that as our gift to you. Matthew chapter 5. This unique beatitude is different from the others. We've talked about seven things that we are to be going after. And now Jesus teaches and he says, if you do all of these things, there's going to be a result. And that's what we find here in this beatitude. This is something that is very, very different. And as Jesus Christ teaches this, I can't help but wonder what the response of the crowd was. I think the main audience was Jesus' 12 disciples that were there as he taught. But you'll remember the setting as there were thousands of people that were surrounding and I think leaning in to hear this teaching for the very first time. I'm going to read verses 10 and 11 of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We've divided each of the Beatitudes into two sections. First of all, the role, and second, the reward. The role that we find here is God blesses those who are, who are persecuted for living for Him. There is great happiness and great blessing, yes, in the future, but also in this present life for those who are persecuted for Jesus Christ. I'm going to talk about four divisions of this uh, role. Four different things that God has laid on my heart. Some of them are uh, kind of tried and true. We've seen that again and again. A couple of the areas I've really struggled with, I've wrestled with over the past uh, week as I've prepared this. But let's talk about four different areas about God blessing those who are persecuted. Number one, persecution will come to those who display Jesus' previously taught beatitudes. I know that's a bit long, 
But that's one of the main points here. It is not just, Jesus is not teaching here that persecution is just for the Christian. He is saying, when you practice all of these things that I have just told you, this will be the end result. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so understand this. This persecution is a result of doing things for righteousness' sake. Living a life that is trying to please God. It is not simply being a Christian. And I almost made an additional point out of this. It's not simply because you're an obnoxious person. There are many people who just have character flaws, sins. They're just not kind or not nice. And they want to grab a hold of this and say, well, I'm suffering for Jesus because I'm a Christian. And it might be just that they're a horrible person to be around. There are some Christians that are like that. Do not think that this suffering for Jesus, and they might grab a hold of that idea that you're a Christian and mock that, but we need to be very, very careful that we understand what's going on here. When we look at persecution, we need to ask the question, how long has suffering for doing good been going on? How far back can we trace this in the history of mankind? If you do your work and you go back, I would suggest that we can trace suffering for doing what is right, contrasted with someone who didn't like that right, all the way back to the very first family. If we can rewind all the way back to Adam and Eve and take a look at this family, we know that they had those two sons. They had Cain and they had Abel. We're familiar with the story, most of us, how they both brought a sacrifice to the Lord and God accepted Abel's sacrifice and God rejected Cain's sacrifice. And it's such a helpful story. One of my favorite parts of the story is how God connects with Cain on two different occasions. God gives Cain a warning ahead of time. This has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but it's part of that story. God comes to Cain ahead of time and he says, gives the idea that sin is crouching at the door. Beware, you're about to get swept up into a temptation. You're about to do something that's going to be horrible. God goes to Cain in his mercy and says, Beware. You do not have the right to be mad at your brother in this way. Watch out. Cain does not receive the warning and Cain kills his brother Abel. We have some commentary on this story in 1 John chapter 3 where it says in verse 12, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now that is exactly what we're talking about today. The, con the contrast of righteousness with the evil that is in this world. Abel is the first one that we find is persecuted for righteousness. And if we can just start right there in the beginning of Genesis and start to flip our way through the scriptures... We find that it happens to Moses. The Bible tells us that Joseph was hated. Moses was reviled. Nehemiah, that great hero of the faith, was defamed. 
We go into the New Testament and we find that Stephen was stoned to death. Peter and John spent time in prison. James, what happened to James? James was beheaded for his righteous living. And the Apostle Paul had a life that was a series of persecutions. Why is this? Why did all of these suffer in such a horrible way? They're good people. There's a lot of things going on in their life that would, be, that would be appealing and attractive. We might model them after ourselves. Even the people outside of the body of Christ would look at them and would stand them up in some ways. And yet persecution came. I want to ask you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 3. John chapter 3 we're going to be in in just a moment. And as you're turning there, I'll go ahead and give us our second point that we're going to be on uh, today, the second division of those that would suffer persecution. And that is this. And this is one of these areas I've spent a lot of time going over to make sure we're on point. Point number two is persecution comes when the light of Christ in believers comes into contact with the darkness of unbelievers. We'll see this in John chapter 3. Persecution is going to come when you, as a child of God, and you have a light within you, when that comes into contact with the darkness. Now I'm giving you some fodder for the debate now. Okay? The wickedness and darkness of mankind. Because, and I'll ask you to raise your hand to give me some feedback, how many of you know an individual that, as far as you know, they're not a follower of Christ, but they appear to be, by all everything that you can see, a very, very good and moral person? How many of you, like me, know somebody like that? Raise your hand. All right, all over the room. So when we come to John chapter 3, and it talks about the wickedness of men, Is that clumping them all in together? Is that individual that just popped into your mind that seems to be a good moral person? I cannot name any great wickedness that they have. Are they included in this group? I want to suggest to us that this happens in two different ways. When our light comes into contact with the darkness of Um, of of sinners of those that don't know Christ the first way is the obvious one it is the clear sin of an unbeliever so you if you have light within you you're living in a way that pleases God and you come across someone who is an adulterer you come across someone in your workplace that has a habit of lying and now they might get caught because they need you to keep that lie for them? An individual that has a, a perversion of mind? This first part, individuals where it's obvious that they are wicked and they are sinners, they will persecute those that have the light within them. But it's that second part that's more difficult. These are the ones in that group that I just referenced a moment ago, that are good moral people, it seems like. They will persecute the righteous when they see that the very best that they can bring in this world is not good enough. And if you're being honest, if you're walking in this world, 
the message is going to be, you know Jesus Christ, you are going to heaven because you've asked for forgiveness for your sins. And at least by, you know, default or by association or something, they're going to pick up on the idea. You might be in a conversation one day and they're going to say, hang on a second, are you saying that I'm going to hell? This good, moral, nice person who maybe gives more money to charity than you do. Maybe they walk old ladies across the street, they're so kind. Maybe they're great. But if we are being honest and walking as light in this world, and honestly, it's the loving thing. It's not a negative message to let somebody know about heaven and hell. But yet, even the best person, when they discover that word that they think is going on in your relationship, the J word, that you are judging them. Who are you to judge me? Who do you think you are to stand above me? And even the best of individuals can persecute. Sometimes they'll even do it in the name of what is good and right. This is what is fair. This is what love is. And so we have to persecute those who would be against this love. I ask you to turn to John chapter 3. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So there's the two categories. Wicked works being exposed whether it be jealousy or hatred or something else, the obvious ones. And then there are the ones who are going to receive the message from the child of God that the standard that is required by God is perfection. Now, does anybody want to get on the giving end of that talk? The standard that's required by God is perfection because if they get to know you for any amount of time, what are they going to find out about you? That you're not perfect, right? You're, you're no better than I am in a lot of ways, they might say. We would come with a verse like 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And here's the good news. If they say, you don't, you don't match up with that, you're not perfect, you're not holy. In fact, what you're saying I have to do and be in order to get into your heaven and please your Jesus is impossible. And then you can say, exactly, it's impossible. I cannot do anything to live up to this standard. I can do nothing that an almighty God would look down and be pleased with. It is only the work of Jesus Christ on the cross that God the Father will look at and he will say, you are my child because of the work done by Christ on the cross. You've come and you've asked for forgiveness. 
Now you're my daughter. You're my son. You're in my family. But if we say there is a standard that they have not met, they are not good enough, worthy is the Lamb. Not one of us get to plug our name into that spot. Jesus Christ is worthy. The first two Beatitudes are are highlighted here. If we're going to talk to someone about this, there has to be a spiritual bankruptcy. Remember that one with the first beatitude? We have to be spiritually bankrupt. Zero that we bring to the table to please God. And then there needs to be a mourning over our sin. A mourning over our sin at one initial point where we turn to Christ and ask for forgiveness, but then also throughout our life. When we fall short, when we're not doing our best, we mourn over that. Individuals for, since God created man, have been trying to talk themselves into the idea that they're good enough to get into heaven by maybe their works, good works outweighing their bad works. They have that in their mind. Martin Luther addressed this many years ago when he said, the most damnable and pernicious heresy that has ever plagued the mind of man is that somehow he can make himself good enough to deserve to live forever with an all-holy God. Darkness hates light when their sin is exposed and when the very best that they can do falls short. So can we avoid persecution? Now, don't answer too quickly because if you are going through your life and you've been forgiven, you've asked for, for forgiveness from God, but you're not willing to pay the price to take the steps of obedience, to be merciful, pure in heart, meek, you're not willing to do that, then I think you probably can avoid persecution. But we have a promise that if you are doing these things, you will be persecuted. Now, remember the question I gave at the beginning, which is easier, to live for Jesus or to die for Jesus? I don't know if I have a good answer for you, but we're going to talk about that third point about persecution, and that is this. Persecution can come physically. Persecution can come physically. This might be an individual that goes to prison for their faith. Might be individuals that are killed for their faith. And we don't think of this, it's, it's just not high on our radar unless we're being intentional and paying attention to stories about that. But this is taking place in the world we live in today. I heard the story of a seminary student that was studying for ministry and he was a seminary student that was from India. And he went to his pastor here in the States and he said, I need you to pray for my home village because there was a violent mob that just raided my home village in India and they came and they broke the arms and the legs of the missionaries that are there. I need you to pray for their recovery, for their health. When we look at individuals that are dying for their faith, it's going on in the world that we live in. And there are multiple sources that we might be able to draw from to look at. It really is hard to get a specific ideal number, but there are multiple resources 
that as we study those, they lead us to see that there are somewhere between 100,000 and 150,000 Christians dying every year for their faith. Between 100 and 150,000 Christians dying every year. One such resource that I talked about a minute ago was is the Church of England newspaper who's able to do some research on this. One particular year, a few years ago, they had estimated that brothers and sisters in Christ, there were 105,000 that had been killed for their faith in one way or another. 105,000. So let's just use that low number of 100,000. This is going to be 288 brothers and sisters in Christ dying every day because they follow Jesus. That is going to break down to 12 that are dying every hour. That means that since we started our service this morning, 12 individuals, brothers and sisters in Christ, have been killed for being Christians. Jesus Christ says this is going to come. We should not be surprised by this. If you have not recently praised God for the country that you were born in, the family that you were born in, and what he wants you to do in those places, let me encourage you today, maybe when you bow your head at your next meal, thank God for where he has you. One last area we're going to talk about persecution is persecution can come verbally. Persecution can come verbally. When I talk about credibility, this almost feels like we should apologize for this, right? If we just talked about 12 people have died since we started this service for their faith, and now I'm talking about somebody snickered at me because of my purity in my life, I can't even, I don't have any credibility. It's like the old conversation, you know, that the parent would give. I used to walk to school through three feet of snow, uphill both ways. You have nothing to complain about, they would tell the young person. But I want to suggest to us that we don't have to apologize for being persecuted verbally. In fact, Jesus Christ spends time talking about it, doesn't he? There in Matthew chapter 5, look at it with me. Verse number 11 says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus Christ says they are going to speak in a horrible way about you. Nicknames, I don't know if you've ever received a nickname for being a Christian. I have. I won't tell you what it was. I don't know if you've ever lost out on a job that you wanted to get a position you wanted to be in, a group of people that you wanted to hang around with because of your faith. Jesus Christ says this is going to come. Let's move on, just finish. We need to talk about the reward. The reward is the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Matthew chapter 5, verse number 12 says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so here is this paradox that even though you are suffering and being persecuted, you can rejoice. It is a paradox that we have to give over to God and trust Him because there is blessing now. 
Have I lost any credibility with this point with anybody? Is there anybody that's saying, how in the world can you tell me that I can have persecution coming down on me for doing right and there can still be blessing? And I would just encourage you with this idea that there is a fellowship that comes from the Holy Spirit that you can experience during suffering that is unequaled to any other kind of fellowship. I do not have time to expand this point, but I have seen again and again and again when an individual has gotten in that fire going through that persecution, and they have grown in incredible ways. That's a blessing. The Holy Spirit letting you know that you are not alone. 1 Peter 4.14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. There's a blessing now. There's a reward later. What can you do with a message like this? Well, first of all, don't be surprised when others hurt you. Do not be shocked when someone responds in a way that is inflicting pain upon you. If you are being a light, then do not be surprised when others make effort to harm you. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised. Also, this is going to involve walking by faith. We need to trust that God's way is perfect. Trust that what He is allowing you to do is not something that He has missed. I remind myself of this often. When we find some kind of a tragedy that happens, whether it involves nature or some kind of um, a large amount of loss of life, I remind myself that God did not take a break on that day and something happened without his permission. And when something happens to you that makes no sense to you, in fact, it seems counterproductive to what a Christian should be experiencing. We need to remember what it says in Psalm 66. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. We went through the fire and through the water, and yet you have brought us to a place of abundance. As for my God, His way is perfect. What God has told you to do is perfect. You'll have to trust Him. And then finally, understand that persecution has a sanctifying effect upon God's children. There is a sanctifying effect that takes place. I mentioned a little bit ago that you should be grateful and thankful for the country you live in, the place where you are at. But having said that, there is a huge danger for those who live in America to become very, very comfortable to get into a rut. And so that's, that's where we see the church growing. We see the church growing in these places where it's not easy. They don't have the same freedoms. And it flourishes. 
This has been documented all throughout history, and I'll give you one example, and we'll be done. With the country of Sri Lanka, years ago, they had a lot of peace. There was a time when the British were in political power in Sri Lanka, and they actually allowed individuals from the church to have a seat at the table of influence, political influence. Things were very calm. They were able to make policies that reflected Christian faith. And we find there, there was a sort of Church of England friendliness that came to them. There was almost no persecution during these years. And don't miss this, there were very few converts. The political climate changed in Sri Lanka. Now the British are gone, and in came a militant Hindu government. They lost their position of influence. And it went so far to the other extreme that Christians were being imprisoned and they were being persecuted. And when that happened, there was a flood of conversions. Persecution is something that is not wasted by our God. I'm not asking you to pray for persecution, but I'm telling you that you don't have to waste it. You don't have to lament it. We look back at what your story is, what happened there, and realize that God has allowed that to happen. And the most beautiful part of it, beautiful part of it is, is you're not alone. God's given us a church family. The community of believers is so important to be tied in to the point where you are missed when you are not here. Some kind of a group is so important. And of course, the ministry of the Holy Spirit that can get us through anything. Anything that can come your way, you are not alone. And I think loneliness is one of the biggest tools of the devil to get you to think that you are alone. Nobody could understand. Nobody's been down this road before. How beautiful for us to fall upon the scriptures, sometimes just to weep and fall and to tell our God, I have no more resources. I have nothing else that I can do. You're going to have to step in. And how common do you think it is that that is exactly where God wants you? Where you can't do anything and you have to lean on Him. We are never alone. When we look back to the Old Testament, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were thrown in that fire. And the king looks in, and he did some counting. Do you remember that? He did some counting when he looked in there. Hang on a second. How many did we throw in that fire? We threw three in that fire. But as I look into the fire, I see four figures. And the fourth one looks like the sun of God. We are never alone, especially during the persecution that is guaranteed to come that are faithful to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we trust that you are good. Anything that would come our way, there's no such thing as coincidence, no such thing as accident. God, we suffer enough bad 
things because of our own failures and sins. And so it confuses us when we're doing the very best that we can and we face persecution. God, this is not something that's easy for us to encourage those that don't know Christ with. And yet they can observe us going through something, maybe the loss of a loved one, some kind of other pain, the loss of a job, and we can come through it with our head held high because we are not alone. We thank you that you are with us through all of this. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, I'm gonna give you an opportunity to pray in just a moment. Two groups that we're speaking to today, there's one group of individuals that would say, yes, I understand that I'm going to suffer persecution, but there is blessing now and there is reward in the future and so I will trust God as that comes. The second group might be, there might be some here that have never accepted Christ as Savior. If that is you, here's what we mean by that. Jesus Christ died on the cross and conquered sin and conquered death for you and for me since we are all sinners and born that way. He died for our sins and all we have to do is say, Dear Jesus, I'm a sinner. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I ask you to forgive me now and make me your child. If God has been pulling on your heartstrings, if God has been leading you in the past days or months to this specific moment, I'd encourage you, even in the quietness of this time, to pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to grab a songbook and turn to 705. 